It'll all go away soon. That's not really a plan, though. The lead starts right now. Confident in public, unloading in private, President Trump trying to convince the U.S. that he and his administration are doing enough to contain the novel coronavirus. As critics suggest, he's asleep at the wheel and the virus spreads. It's Bernie versus the bunch, a critical debate tonight, the last chance for Democratic candidates to knock down frontrunner Senator Sanders before a major chunk of the country has its say on Super Tuesday. Plus, as President Trump tries to weed out perceived disloyalty inside the Trump administration, he is also ripping liberal-leaning justices on the Supreme Court, suggesting they, too, should get out of his way. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with breaking news in the money lead today. For a second day in a row, you hear the bell. The Dow is taking a dramatic hit down almost 900 points, more than 800. Investors rattled by the steady spread of the novel coronavirus and fears that health health officials around the world, including here in the U.S., are unprepared. Let's go straight to CNN's Allison Kozik. She's at the New York Stock Exchange. Allison, this was supposed to be turnaround Tuesday after meltdown Monday, but it looks as though investors are are still quite spooked. They certainly are, and we could be stuck in this downward trend at least for a little while longer. Uh, All of the major indices are very close to a correction, and that's a 10% drop from a recent high. The Dow really taking it on the chin, losing 2,000 points in two days. Today's trigger, the Centers for Disease Control saying expect to see the coronavirus spread here in the U.S., that it's not a question of if, but when. So needless to say, there is a lot of anxiety here on Wall Street. Questions like what are the implications of the coronavirus if it comes here to the U.S.? What does that mean for the economy? Already we've heard from a lot of companies uh, already issuing warnings about how the coronavirus will hit their sales. The big one we heard from today, MasterCard, saying it will take a 2 to 3 percent hit in the first quarter because it expects people to spend less money, which means they'll be out there shopping less. One trader telling me he would be surprised if any company escapes being touched by the coronavirus. And that means we could see more selling ahead. Jake. All right, Allison Kozak at the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks so much. As health professionals warn the U.S. government, the coronavirus will almost certainly become a pandemic and that the U.S. needs to be better prepared for it. Moments ago, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar felt compelled to come before the cameras to brief the public and defend President Trump. This preparation has been possible in part because of how aggressively President Trump has responded to this outbreak. Secretary Azar forced to play cleanup there after going before lawmakers this morning and essentially acknowledging that the U.S. is, as of right now, not prepared. Can you assure every single American today that if this pandemic hits our shores, that we have everything available and we've stockpiled it and we're ready to go? That's precisely why we need to work with Congress for additional appropriations to enable procurement. But right now, and we've been very clear, Dr. Fauci has told you just this morning, um, we don't have a vaccine. One can't have a vaccine. No, I'm not asking about about diagnostics and testing, which we we don't have enough, correct? Yes, we have a diagnostics. Democrats and Republicans today warning that the Trump administration does not seem fully prepared for the virus to spread in the United States while it continues to spread into and throughout Europe. And as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports, even though sources say President Trump is frustrated privately with how his administration is handling the fallout of this all, he is publicly attempting to project confidence. 
Sources telling CNN that President Trump has privately expressed frustration about his administration's efforts to contain the coronavirus epidemic, even as he attempts to project confidence publicly. I think that's a problem that's going to go away. President Trump's optimistic note comes even as officials warn cases will rise in the United States. I think that whole situation will start working out. A lot of talent, a lot of brain power is being put behind it. But sources tell CNN that behind the scenes, the president is not so confident in that brain power and is upset that Americans who tested positive for coronavirus were quarantined in the United States and that his administration plans to quarantine some patients in the pro-Trump state of Alabama. He was completely unaware of this. He was uh, annoyed that these individuals had even been brought back to the continental United States uh, while they were still infected, but assured me that he would get to work on trying to stop it. The president's frustrations reflecting a growing concern inside the White House that the viral outbreak will be a bigger challenge than previously thought. Recent outbreaks in Italy, South Korea and Iran hiking global cases to 80,000 and triggering fears the disease could become a pandemic. Folks, this is a rapidly escalating epidemic in different places that we have got to tackle super fast to prevent a pandemic. Weeks after lawmakers called for more funding, the White House now finally asking Congress for $1.25 billion in emergency funds to build out a $2.5 billion federal effort. For some lawmakers on Capitol Hill, it was too little and too late. The administration must increase its emergency budget request to at least $3.1 billion with no cuts. Bipartisan outrage grew as administration officials fielded questions on Capitol Hill. You're supposed to keep us safe, and the American people deserve some straight answers on the coronavirus. And I'm not getting them from you. I disagree. As the administration tries to beat back criticism, a member of its coronavirus task force did not exactly inspire confidence, taking to Twitter to say he was struggling to access data about the epidemic. The Department of Homeland Security's number two official asking, has the John Hopkins map of the coronavirus stopped working for other people or just me? Seems like bad timing to stop helping the world. Here's hoping it goes back up soon. And Jake, beyond the uh, health impact that this could have in the U.S., one of the biggest concerns for the president and his administration is the economic impact this is having and could continue to have, particularly in a re-election year. And with stocks continuing to tumble today, uh, the administration sent out its chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, on CNBC to try and reassure investors. But he didn't manage to stop the sell-off. But what he did manage to do uh, was to muddle the message. Uh, And that's because while he said that the administration is successfully containing the virus, today the Centers for Disease control said to expect the disease to continue to spread in the United States and that there might be severe disruption to daily life for Americans. That's something of a contradiction. Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much for that excellent report. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is here with me now. Uh, Sanjay, thanks for joining us. So just to be clear, so our viewers can understand, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, says the coronavirus is going to spread in the United States, but the White House today said that it's contained. Who's right? (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the CDC has pretty, been pretty clear about this. I actually spent some time with the head of the CDC to try and better understand this. And I think, I think Dr. Redfield could not have been more clear about this. I want you to listen to his words. But keep in mind that the quarantine that we saw in China, the largest quarantine in the history of the, of the world, never seen a quarantine this big, was probably never designed to stop 
the virus completely from, from spreading, but to slow it down. Uh, that was one of the objectives. But listen to how Dr. Redfield put it. This virus is probably with us beyond this season or beyond this year, and I think eventually the virus will find a foothold and we will get community-based transmission. And uh, you can start to think of it in a sense like uh, seasonal flu. Uh, the only difference is we don't understand this virus. So look, Jake, uh, describing it like seasonal flu, I think tells you what you need to know. I mean, Dr. Redfield's saying this is gonna get a foothold in the United States, there will be community transmission. I mean, obviously that, that, that's, that's concerning, but again, the, the, the policies and the procedures that have been put in place were to slow this down, not to prevent it. They've known that all along, Jake. All right, and Sanjay, Sanjay uh, senators from both sides of the aisle today suggested that the amount of money that the Trump administration is requesting to combat this, to slow it down, is $2.5 billion. That, that, that's insufficient. What do you think, what do experts think is actually needed for a smart, robust, uh, sufficient response to this virus? Well, you know, one, one thing I'd just like to say, uh, Jake, at the beginning, you know, because my friends in the public health world, this drives them crazy because there's been so many cuts that have been, been proposed to these various preparedness programs, including Office of Public Health Preparedness, hospital preparedness programs, cuts that were being suggested in the middle of a coronavirus outbreak. So just as a starting point, uh, this 2.5 billion number, it's a little bit tough to say exactly um, uh, how much is gonna be necessary. They say about a billion towards vaccine, a billion and a half towards other forms of preparedness. But I, you know, I remind you that in, for the Ebola outbreak, which obviously the numbers weren't near what this is, uh, the initial request was for $6 billion. H1N1, uh, the, the, the flu pandemic of 2009, which may have more similarities to this, as you just heard from Dr. Redfield, the request was close to $8 billion. So uh, there's a lot that goes into these numbers, and this may be the first phase of money that's being requested, I don't know. But as an initial starting point, it's a lot lower than we've, what we've seen in recent history. Past U.S. presidents have put in place a sort of epidemic czar, somebody to be right. uh, to, to lead the, the response when there's an outbreak uh, overseas that, that there's fears will come to the United States. President Trump has yet to do that. Uh, is, is someone in that role, can they help with preparedness? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's so many different facets of our society upon which something like this hits. We obviously talk about it in terms of vaccine development. But look, you know, surge capacity within hospitals. We have 57 patients in this country right now, and you, we've seen the images of what it takes to be able to isolate people who need to be isolated, care for them in the hospital. Uh, it's, it's significant. You saw the images out of Seattle, that first patient being in that ward by himself, having robots uh, sort of uh, help administer some of his care. What if you start having thousands of patients like that? What is the surge capacity? How do we care for patients uh, you know, within big cities? That, that's, that's a big concern. You need someone who's overseeing that in addition to vaccine development, in addition to therapeutics uh, and, and, and all the other ramifications. So that's why someone in that position is important. There's, there's multiple different prongs to trying to tackle a, a, a big outbreak like this. There are now 57 cases of the coronavirus in the United States. A, a global health expert told me earlier today, I think this is gonna get much worse and I don't think we are ready, including not mentally prepared to do the necessary mm -hmm. contingency planning, unquote. Do you, do you agree? I, I, I do. I mean, I think that, again, Dr. Redfield has said that. I don't think the public health officials uh, have been opaque about this. I think in the beginning, it was never a binary thing. Either it's coming or it's not coming. It was about buying time with these various strategies that they put into place. One thing I will say, Jake, though, is that 
When we talk about pandemic and epidemic and outbreak, we're really talking about how widespread something is, not necessarily about how lethal something is. Uh, those are two different things, and something can be very widespread and not that lethal. Uh, we know, for example, from the largest study uh, of 45,000 people infected with the coronavirus, that about 80%, eight in 10, either had no symptoms or minimal symptoms fatality ratio hovering around 2%. So, you know, it, it's going to spread. I think uh, most public health officials I've talked to have said that. It doesn't mean necessarily it's gonna be some, some very lethal uh, uh, spread, lethal outbreak either, Jake. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta with interesting and important perspective. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Yeah. President Trump is picking a fight with a different branch of government, going after one Supreme Court justice for doing her job then. His name had to be pulled the last time President Trump floated it to head America's intelligence agencies. But that's not stopping Texas Congressman John Ratcliffe from being considered again. Stay with us. We're back with the politics lead President Trump right now returning from his two day trip to India, where he refused to answer the question as to whether he agrees that Russia is interfering in the 2020 election. It's a fact that his national security officials have asserted on the record and publicly President Trump also declaring he has received no help from Moscow this cycle and does not want any help from any country. He also attacked Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, insisting that both should recuse themselves from future Supreme Court cases related to him. CNN's Boris Sanchez reports now from the White House. President Trump arguing members of his intelligence community exaggerated Russia's plans to meddle in the 2020 election and saying he doesn't want the Kremlin's help. First of all, I want no help from any country, and I haven't been given help from any country. Without evidence, Trump claiming Democrats leaked details of a classified House intelligence briefing involving Russian meddling. Trump also using his press conference in India to target Supreme Court justices, mischaracterizing Justice Sonia Sotomayor's scathing dissent on a recent ruling. Sotomayor criticizing the government for repeatedly asking justices to break with a traditional appellate process on controversial cases pushed by the White House. The justice writing, quote, I fear that this disparity in treatment erodes the fair and balanced decision-making process that this court must strive to protect. Trump suggesting she is trying to pressure other justices. When you're a justice of the Supreme Court, and it's almost what she's trying to do is take the people that do feel a different way and get them to vote uh, the way that she would like them to vote. Meantime, just miles from Trump's meetings with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, at least 11 people were killed in violent clashes over Modi's citizenship law that critics say discriminates against Muslims. When asked about the violence, Trump praised Modi for fighting for religious freedom. He wants people to have religious freedom, and very strongly, and he said that in India, India they, have, uh, they have worked very hard to have great an open religious freedom. But Modi has faced accusations of Islamophobia before. In 2002, as the top official in Gujarat, Modi was accused of condoning an ethnic riot that killed more than a thousand people, mostly Muslim. And Jake, President Trump revealed today that he and Modi didn't discuss those clashes that took place just a short distance from where they were meeting. President Trump saying that resolving this violence is simply up to India, Jake. 
All right, Boris Sanchez at the White House. Uh, thanks so much. Let's chew over all this uh, with our, my panel. Let me start with you, Bill Crystal, because a lot of people have been criticizing Bernie Sanders this week for his um, comments in which he, and while also criticizing China and Cuba, have also praised facets of, of their governments. Um, and here we have President Trump with a real life, not a dictator, he was elected, but somebody who has, uh, you know, is accused of having blood on his hands, uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, and not saying anything about what a lot of people feel is a real anti-Muslim movement in India. Well, President Trump has a soft spot for sort of nativist and right-wing authoritarians, some of them democratically elected, at least at first, others just not even pretending to be democratically elected. Um, and uh, Bernie Sanders has, something, has had something of a soft spot for left-wing authoritarians. It's really a wonderful choice if it comes down to that. <laughs> uh, t- t- um, and uh, Mr. Harwood, take a listen to President Trump speaking to reporters earlier today. When uh, asking about whether or not he believes what all his intelligence officials and national security officials have said publicly that Russia is attempting to interfere in the 2020 election. And they told Bernie about something having to do with they want Bernie to win. Intelligence never told me, and we have a couple of people here that would know very well, they never told me anything about that. Now, just to be clear, based on my sources and other people at CNN, the intelligence does not say that they want Bernie to win. Uh, the intelligence says they have no preference and they are working right now to disrupt the primaries, helping Sanders that way, uh, but that they don't actually have a preference. Um, but it looks like they are really going to politicize the intelligence this year. Well, there's no question about it. President Trump has a primal impulse to absolve himself of responsibility and project onto other people uh, uh, fault or, uh, in this case, yeah, the Russians want him, not me. Um, that's simply a reflex for the president. It's not about his reasoned consideration of the uh, intelligence evidence. And uh, he he did this in uh, 2016, saying, oh, yeah, they uh, uh, Russia, go out and find the emails, but saying that, well, they probably wanted Hillary rather than me. I mean, he, that's what he does. Yeah. And, and, and Laura, the president has long downplayed Russian interference. Critics say he hasn't punished Moscow enough. Take a listen to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo today, however. The Trump administration will always work to protect the integrity of our elections, period, full stop. Should Russia or any foreign actor take steps to undermine our democratic processes, we will take action in response. Now, that's a very muscular, uh, you know, pushback on Russia and what they're doing. But I wonder, you know, is it mixed messages? Yes. And then there's no telling when the president, which he has in the last year, will go out onto the lawn and say, go ahead and meddle, China, and go ahead and meddle to Russia. And he's done that repeatedly. And there's no telling whether or not he will continue to do that heading into the general election. Uh, he did it in 2016 as well. So there remains... If he this- does that, should we take it literally or seriously? <laughs> right, exactly. I think both. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, there's... There's mixed messages, mixed messages constantly from from officials that that uh, work for Trump, uh, that work in the government agencies, and from the White House itself. There's no telling what he's going to do. Heading and, up. and Jackie, I want to get your view on uh, President Trump. He was asked uh, whether it was inappropriate uh, what so- uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor had to say. Take a listen. The way I look at it, he's trying to shame people with perhaps a different view into voting her way, and that's so inappropriate. But this is, this is exactly what Sotomayor said in her opinion, quote, claiming one emergency after another, the government has recently sought stays in an unprecedented number of cases. It is hard to say what is more troubling, that the government would seek this extraordinary relief seeming as a matter of course, or that the court 
would grant it, it seems to me like she's kind of just doing her job. Well, right. And trying to convince other justices to side with her is kind of what her job is. But this president has shown over and over and over again, as recently as today, to not know any boundaries between the executive and the judicial branch and to try to insert himself into both. So uh, this is more of the same, but it's just the latest uh, liberal justice he has attacked. He went after Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, last year. So um, this is uh, very on brand. All right, everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. We're just hours from the last debate before Super Tuesday and the Democratic presidential hopefuls are making it clear whom they plan to target. That's next. The center of the stage and likely the main target for Democrats tonight, Senator Bernie Sanders, who says he is absolutely prepared as the Democratic frontrunner for the barrage of attacks he expects to face this evening when seven Democratic presidential hopefuls face off in just a few hours in the last debate before the crucial South Carolina primary this Saturday. Uh, let's discuss. Um, so Sanders knows he'll face a ma- major incoming tonight, but after a dominant win in Nevada and New Hampshire and a popular vote win in Iowa, is it too little too late? And there's already early voting going on in these massive states. California. California, yeah. Texas, yeah. So the, there, there's, there's a lot for Sanders to lose here, but he also has gained so much because he has been on the ground. He's, ha- he's had these massive operations. Now, if he turns in a solid performance tonight and manages to fend off all of these you know, daggers that are coming his way, South Carolina, he, he could get, and right now, he's, he's within striking distance mm-hmm. of Joe Biden. And that, I mean, that would be a, a, a major upset in this race. One issue uh, that a lot of Democrats have been attacking Bernie Sanders over has to do with his um, qualified praise of what uh, Fidel Castro has been able to, was able to do when it comes to education and, and literacy in, in Cuba. Um, he was given a chance to, to clear that up on CNN. Uh, he was asked about comments he made decades ago on 60 Minutes, and then he said nice things again while criticizing the authoritarian government. Then last night on CNN, he said this. He formed the Literacy Brigade. You may read that. He went out and they helped people learn to read and write. You know what? I think teaching people to read and write is a good thing. China is an authoritarian country, becoming more and more authoritarian. But can anyone deny, I mean, the facts are clear, that they have taken more people out of extreme poverty than any country in history. There are a lot of Democrats out there and even Senator supporters that wish he wouldn't say things like that. Well, it's a problem. It's a political problem for them. It will be a political problem for him, I believe, in the general. But I think he believes what he said initially, and it's hard for him to fully walk it back. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a good line about that, saying, do we really want to fight the the, uh, fall of 2020 campaign uh, with a top of the ticket that emphasizes the bright side of uh, a dictatorial regime. It's, it's, uh, it's simply an, an inconvenient truth, let's say. Uh, and as uh, uh, various people, Democrats have said, yes, they taught them, uh, taught literacy, but they taught literacy for purposes of indoctrination. You know, how do you separate those things? What he said about China is true. They've reduced poverty on a massive scale. It's not a free country. Yeah, they also they also have all these Muslims in camps. And in Cuba, they put, you know, gays and lesbians in. in, uh, They lock them away, too. I mean, I'm a China hawk. But, you know, the funny thing about that is why why has China boomed economically over the last 40 years? I believe the normal explanation, which is correct, is they opened it up economically to competition and free markets. Why has India boomed since 1991 after being in very bad shape? Because of free markets. So uh, Sanders example in this particular case, I'm looking forward to him making the case that it's because 
of socialism that China has done well. When China was really social communist, when government, before they let competition and markets in, they were not doing well. And then they had the famous turn in 79 or whatever that was in India in 91. So I do think it's, I mean, he is very soft on authoritarianism. But ultimately, I do think it is the fact that if people think he is a socialist who really wants to bring socialism to the U.S., that's a problem for him politically. Mm-hmm. And, and Laura, I want you to take a listen. This is Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey. He is uh, somewhat hawkish uh, when it comes to uh, foreign policy, but he is the ranking Democrat on the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, take a listen to what he said about Bernie Sanders. I always find it interesting that he gives a passing glance to the question of authoritarianism, but then dwells on all of the alleged good things. So it's just uh, not what I would want to see in the person who would be the leader of the free world. That's a Democrat Mm -hmm. talking about the Democratic presidential front runner. It's not what I will want to see in a person who in the person who would be the leader of the free world. He's not the only one. Uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, I was talking to weeks ago, who said if Sanders is at the top of the ticket, I don't know how I can sell, quote, good socialism to my voters in Missouri, how other Democrats that are in tough districts are going to sell that. And this is something that candidates like Bloomberg and Biden are really trying to play up in these coming weeks. They've been talking to House Democrats about it. They're trying to clearly consolidate support around themselves, saying if you really don't want Sanders at the top of the ticket, we have to consolidate moderate support behind one candidate uh, because they're warning about the impact on down ballot Democrats. And that's why you've seen so many of those Democrats that are in difficult frontline districts and those vulnerable competitive House districts go to either Biden or Bloomberg. And it's worth saying that that if Democrats elected officials wanted him at the top of the ticket, they'd find a way to talk around this. But they don't want him at the top of the ticket. You know, it's it's interesting because you do have you have what you have here. And this is how the Sanders campaign would would cast it, and it's not wrong. You have here Democratic elites, people like Senator Bob Menendez, versus the will of the Democratic voters out there, who one after the another after another are saying we want Sanders. Well, right, and and that is that is his argument is like if you're selling a better product, then they're going to buy that. Well, you're not now. That, elections don't work how some of the moderate. Uh, candidates are explaining them, saying, oh, we're all going to consolidate around one person. That necessarily won't, that won't necessarily happen. Some people might end up going to Sanders. Some people it, that, that is 70 percent approval ratings among Democrats. But exactly. Three out of 10 votes so far. If you add up a popular vote in the three states that have voted fewer, less than three percent. He's got 30 percent. 2016 flashbacks. He's got, it is 2016 flashbacks. And that's, that why I hope the Democrats, that's why the Democrats need to do better than we Republicans did and and consolidate. To some Everyone degree. stick around. We Jim got- Clyburn tomorrow morning is going to endorse Biden, right? That's a is Laura he, Scoop. Is he an elite? Is he, is, he some fancy, is he some fancy elite who doesn't speak for, for poor He's a House Democratic leader. Anyway, stick around. we got more to talk about. Bernie Sanders looking for his third win in a row this weekend. Four, if you count the popular vote in Iowa. It could all come down to one critical group of voters. Who are they? Stay with us. Rivals are making new attempts to stop the momentum of Senator Bernie Sanders heading into Saturday's primary in South Carolina. A group of black Democratic leaders who have all endorsed Michael Bloomberg for president made a show of force today in Charleston, arguing that Sanders has a poor voting record on issues disproportionately affecting black voters, such as gun violence. Then, from former Vice President Joe Biden, a new ad recalls what Sanders said in 2011, that it would be a good idea if President Trump, I mean, sorry, President Obama, faced some primary opposition because he was too willing to negotiate with Republicans, among other issues. 
Bernie Sanders was seriously thinking about challenging our first African-American president in a primary. As CNN's Ryan Nobles now reports for us, these attacks are coming as Sanders looks to bolster support among black voters, voters he did not overwhelmingly get in 2016. This time, Senator Bernie Sanders is taking a different approach. After he struggled to win broad support from voters of color in his primary battle with Hillary Clinton four years ago. How is your campaign different in 2016 than it is now in reaching out to those communities? Good questions. We're much more diverse. I mean, that's the simple answer. I can't tell you exactly, but we have hundreds of Latinos and African-Americans on our staff right now reaching out into the Latino and African-American community. That concerted effort already yielding results. My God, there are a lot of people here tonight. The minority vote in Nevada helped fuel his blowout win in the caucuses there. Still, entrance polls showed Sanders trailing Joe Biden by 10 points among black voters. While here in South Carolina, even skeptical black leaders like the Reverend Joseph Darby, a longtime ally of Biden, have noticed a change. He's done a splendid job of outreach to the African-American community this time. Whoever is advising him uh, kind of pointed him in the right direction. In 2016, Sanders lost South Carolina to Clinton by nearly 50 points, getting trounced among black voters by more than 70 points. With the primary now just four days away, the latest polls show Sanders in striking distance of the former vice president. And some voters who may not have considered him in 2016 are keeping an open mind this time around. I like that he's honest and, and he's truthful about um, a lot of his topics that he, that he speaks about. Sanders is investing time meeting with black leaders, addressing issues of specific concerns to the African-American community, and sharing his own story of participating in the civil rights movement. So he marched with MLK, he decided he's going to run, and he's going to have a people power campaign. Sanders has also surrounded himself with prominent black leaders and activists, and even celebrities such as hip-hop star Killer Mike and actor Ray Fisher, who spent Monday stumping for Sanders in South Carolina. What our mission is to do is to make people aware as to what Senator Sanders actually stands for and to show people that they have, that he has their best interest at heart. And while Sanders has made gains, black leaders like Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, a former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, say there is still more work to do. You know, black people, we, we believe we're pretty conservative. We're pretty moderate people. And so all in all, we're looking for someone who we think is kind of more center left than far left. Still now, Sanders does believe there's an opportunity for him here in South Carolina to beat expectations. And to that end, his campaign is increasing their presence here. They've expanded their ad buy to the entire state, investing $500,000. And Jake, in the closing days of this campaign, he will spend time in some t Super Tuesday states, but he's added, added events here in South Carolina as well because they do believe he has a real shot. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles with the Sanders campaign in Charleston, South Carolina. Tomorrow night, you can hear more from Michael Bloomberg, Joe Biden, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Senator Elizabeth Warren in live CNN town halls, all of them in the Palmetto State, South Carolina, all starting at 7 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. We have some breaking news for you now. Jurors in the Roger Stone case have been called back to court. Why? We'll tell you next. We have this breaking news for you in the case of recently convicted Trump associate and friend Roger Stone. He's asking for a new trial today because he says the jury forewoman was politically biased. Moments ago, the judge called back part of the I'm sorry, the judge called part of the jury back into the courthouse. And it just happens to come after a series of Twitter attacks on that same juror by President Trump. CNN Sarah Murray joins me now. Sarah, some of these jurors may now have to testify. Is that what's going on? 
That's right, Jake. Some of them actually already are. But first, let's get to these Twitter attacks. I mean, the judge kicked off her hearing today, essentially warning about potential harm to jurors if they're identified, pointing to the president's Twitter feed. And he tweeted moments after she said this, saying there has rarely been a juror so tainted as the forewoman in the Roger Stone case. He goes on to say the forewoman, forewoman she was totally biased, as is the judge. Uh, the president is insisting this is a miscarriage of justice as he's on his way back from India. What the judge is trying to do in this hearing is get to the bottom of Stone's request for a new trial. This request is based on Stone's allegation of juror misconduct, and it was almost like a reality television reveal, but we can't actually see what's happening in the courtroom. We can only hear it because she wants to keep the identity secret. The judge does. But she said, look, in this next room, I have 11 members of the jury that I've called here today. Judge Amy Berman Jackson has already questioned two of those members of the jury, essentially saying, were you pressured in any of these deliberations? How did you reach um, your conclusion in this? How did you guys pick the four person in this jury? Did anyone bring in outside material? She's finished that questioning. Now they're going to move on to this issue of whether the four person in this jury uh, was in fact biased. But it has been a, you know, a pretty dramatic day as far as court goes, Jake. That's right. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Uh, coming up, he just said Adam Schiff is helping Russia create election chaos, and he's back on President Trump's shortlist to be the country's top intelligence officer. Stay with us. And I'd like to recognize the career in public service of retired Vice Admiral Joseph McGuire. Our country is safer and stronger when they have the tools and the resources they need and leadership that understands that political bias must have no quarter in intelligence work and that all Americans' rights need protecting. One might interpret that as the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sending a clear message to President Trump Nominate someone to be director of national intelligence who has professional intelligence and national security experience, as opposed to the sharp-elbowed Trump loyalist partisans that President Trump currently seems to be considering for the post, being exited by Joseph McGuire. Sources tell CNN that Trump is now considering his ally, Congressman John Ratcliffe of Texas, or controversial ambassador to the Netherlands, Pete Huckstra, to fill the position, director of national intelligence. And he met with both of them in the past few days in an attempt to assess how loyal they would be to them. Let's talk about this with Phil Mudd and Laura Coates. I had a feeling that uh, McGuire's days were numbered from the very moment that he testified uh, under oath about the Ukraine scandal. You might recall, here's a little bit of Admiral McGuire talking about the Ukraine scandal whistleblower. Would you say that the whistleblower's complaint is remarkably consistent with the transcript that was released? I would say that uh, the whistleblower's uh, complaint is in alignment uh, with what was released yesterday by the, the president. I think the whistleblower did the right thing. I think he followed the law every step of the way. Just today, President Trump said this about the whistleblower and the whistleblower's complaint. We had a whistleblower who was a fake, because if you look at the whistleblower as an example, if you look at his report and then you compare that to the transcripts, it bore no relationship. So, Phil, it seems to me that it's a question as to whether or not President Trump wants a director of national intelligence who tells the truth. Yeah, let's make sure we have this question right. It's not a question of whether he gets to pick somebody he likes. Any president does. It's a question of whether when you when you walk through the front gate of the CIA, there's a phrase you learn. Let me translate it. Speak truth to, to power. The truth will set you free. The question will be not whether the, the, the nominees are loyal. It's whether they will speak truth to the president. So over the next few months going into the election, what's that truth? Secondary issues, Iran, 
North Korea. And then there's the big issue, Russian interference. Who's going to walk in and say to him, sorry, Mr. President, here's the deal. And secondly, finally, talking to you and me or talking to a congressional committee, when somebody says Are the Russians interfering in favor of the candidate, is one of them going to say, yeah, and that candidate, it kind of might, it kind of might be my boss. And, and Laura, I want you to take a listen uh, to Congressman Ratcliffe just this week talking about the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. I don't know anyone in the last three years who has done more to help Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, with their efforts to sow the seeds of discord in um, uh, uh, American elections and American election security uh, than Adam Schiff has. What do you think? Well, that just gives you the interview, right? That is the entree into the president's esteem. And he already had sufficient information to know that Radcliffe, over the course of the Mueller probe, over the course of the different committee chair hearings, that he was somebody who was going to support the president, even when the evidence in front of him suggests that he should at least challenge the president's notions. And so when you have demonstrable evidence on television that he is prepared to be the president's, um, you know, champion, his advocate, even if it belies the truth, that almost guarantees you the president's favor. We saw that when it came to, of course, the Attorney General William Barr, when he weighed in on matters to make sure the president knew, hey, I'm the person going to support you. It carries over now. The difference here, and Phil talked about this issue, the difference here is the director of national intelligence's role is to assess national security threats against the United States of America, to be able to assess credible threats, to be able to convey the information, and to be somebody who can be entrusted with the information. Not a loyalist. It's not to the president. It's supposed to be a loyalist to the United States of America. And if the only criteria is whether you can placate or pander to the president, we're all in a lot of trouble, Jake. And we had the national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, on Sunday go on the Sunday shows and, and misrepresent uh, what I'm told is the intelligence suggests that Bernie Sanders is actually the choice of the Russians and they want him to get elected. That's not what the intelligence says. Uh, but O'Brien was willing to do that. What might that mean for this position? Look, let me put two things that don't look together together. Coronavirus and Russia. In both cases, complicated intergovernment coordination. And you need a president who says, look, regardless of whether this is an inconvenient truth, am I going to go speak to the American people? In both cases, the answer, no. And we had, speaking of the coronavirus, we had the president, uh, the White House today, rather, I think it was a Kudlow, say that it's been contained and you have the Centers for Disease Control, where, as far as I can tell, it's still experts who are there because of their expertise and not because of their loyalty to President Trump saying uh, it's spreading in the United States. Well, you know, what's so tragic about that is the idea of all of the concern that the American population has. We're hearing about what's happening in Italy. We're hearing about the Wuhan region. We're hearing about the spread. And we're concerned from the cruise ships and beyond whether the American people are safe and whether there are policies in place to ensure the pandemic does not reach our shores and certainly affect so many people. And so when you have this contradiction of information, that leads to the credibility problem we've seen from the very beginning, from the Sean Spicer discussion about crowd size. Who can the American people believe? And if it can't be the president of the United if it can't be the CDC, does anyone feel safe? Laura Coates, Phil Mudd, the question answers itself. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.